turn to the Gospel of John, and I want you to turn all the way to the end of the book, chapter 20. We're going to read one verse today, verse 31. John chapter 20, verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Down the center aisle of chairs, there are a couple Bibles underneath. You can have the person on the end grab one of those and give it to you. You can keep that Bible. It belongs to you now. Take it with you if you don't have one. And when you get to John chapter 20, verse 31, say amen. Only a couple people are there. <laughs> John 20, 31. Now I got to find it. My gosh. All right, let's read together. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, it's uh, still the beginning of the year, the year 2015. It's the beginning of a new month. It is uh, the first day of that month. And as we do with beginnings, we, uh, we thank you for new mercies. We thank you for uh, everlasting grace. And today's a special day in that today we get to open up a new book of the Bible and study it together. And so, Lord, we do ask uh, both for your grace on us that you would, by your Holy Spirit, breathe into our lives that uh, we would get all that you would have us to get out of the Gospel of John. Lord, I pray that you would open ears, that eyes would see freshly things that we've never seen before by reading these words. Uh, more importantly, as John encourages us, Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith, that you would cause us to believe, to believe more than we currently believe right now in regards to Jesus. For those in the room who don't know anything about Jesus, you're just here because somebody invited you or um, you've been in church for a while but just haven't read much of the Bible, God, I pray that uh, the things that we see in John, the signs, the miracles, Jesus saying, I am, that they would resonate and that you penetrate the thickness of our hearts and that the Holy Spirit would reveal him freshly to us that leads to salvation. And then for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while, Lord, would you cause us to believe freshly that Jesus is who he says he is, not just for the world, but personally for, for me, for us. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your church, and uh, we pray that your gospel, we'd hear it, we'd see it, we'd live by it, it would change us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. No one in the world is as popular as Jesus, but not every Jesus is the real Jesus. Perhaps you are familiar with a few of these. There's a Republican Jesus. The Republican Jesus is against tax increases and activist judges but it's vehemently for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who stands against Wall Street and Walmart, but passionately supports reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's Therapist Jesus. Therapist Jesus helps us cope with life's problems. He heals our past. He tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus. I mean, how could we live life without Starbucks Jesus? who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, 
who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, well, except for those who aren't as open-minded as he is. There's touchdown Jesus, we'll see him today, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing fair faucet hair, walks around barefoot wearing a sash. And oh, by the way, he looks like a white Anglo-Saxon German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, live our best life now, reach for the stars, and of course, buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus, who hates everything about religion. He hates churches, pastors, priests, doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within themselves while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus. Platitude Jesus is good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, bad sermons, and inspiring people to believe only in themselves. And then there's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame everything on the system. There's guru Jesus. Guru Jesus is a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus. That just sounds wrong, doesn't it? I mean, that just sounds wrong. Boyfriend Jesus wraps his arms around you as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. Wrong. Lastly, this good example, Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet, become a better you. Which Jesus do you know? But then there's this Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And the question for us today is, which Jesus do you believe? Speaking of Jesus, welcome to our series in the Gospel of John um, you know, no books of the Bible speak more of the life of Jesus than the four Gospels. I mean, why are there four Gospels where there, there are four different accounts of the life of Jesus? Uh, the Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament of your Bible. If you take your Bible, divide it in half, it's going to pr- probably fall uh, on the, near close to the, the New Testament, the New Covenant, which talks really much about Jesus. And as we look at the four Gospels, they are accounts of the life of Jesus written by four different men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they give us different aspects of his life. So starting with Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector. He was Jewish. He's a guy that Jesus walked up to as he was sitting down, cheating everybody out of their money, and he just says, hey, follow me. Matthew got up and left all his money, followed Jesus. And so Matthew writes from a Jewish perspective trying to help Jews believe that Jesus is the king. He's the king that they have always wanted. Matthew uses words like kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven over and over to help help the, the Jewish people come to the fact that Jesus was their king. The next gospel is, is Mark's gospel, and Mark emphasizes that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God. Mark spends over half of the 16 chapters in his gospel talking about Jesus in his last days leading up to his crucifixion. Mark was actually John Mark, not an apostle, but uh, there's, a, there's an account of, of, of John Mark, that we call Mark, that uh, Jesus is being arrested, and he's not really 
uh, a part of the arrest, but he's off to the side and he's scared, um, hiding behind a bush kind of thing. And then for whatever reason, his clothes get stripped off of him and he like flees. John Mark, the guy that wrote Mark's gospel, is uh, the one that went with Paul and Barnabas uh, during their first missionary journey that divided them and caused them to go separate ways. And it's said that Mark is, Mark's gospel is a reflection of Peter and his, his life with Jesus. So Mark writes from Peter's perspective. The third gospel is, is Luke's gospel. Luke was an apostle. Luke was a doctor, and he writes a very logical, structured account of Jesus. He's writing to Greeks, and he's trying to reason with them and explain to them that Jesus is the man, the man who happens to be God. Luke's gospel is the prequel to the book of Acts, where we see the early church being formed and Paul and some of the other apostles going out and um, making the church become all that it is today. And then we get to John. And so John is the apostle John. He writes 40 or 50 years after Jesus lived, and he addresses the question of whether Jesus was really God. Now, you think about how controversial Jesus is in our day. 50 years after Jesus died and was resurrected, it it hasn't changed. For 2,000 years, it's always been a controversy in regards to whether Jesus is who he said it was, whether he was God. Did he actually uh, raise from the grave? It's always been a controversy. John is an interesting gospel. You know, while all the gospel accounts have unique perspectives, John is is perhaps the most unique. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they kind of uh, systematically go through Jesus' life from his birth to uh, him, not much about his his upbringing. Then they give us a little bit about his commissioning, and then we see some miracles, and then, then we see his... His, his passion, his death and his crucifixion. John, John doesn't do any of that. He just skips all of that. And he just comes to what he thinks are the important things of Jesus' life. John is the, he's known as the disciple that Jesus loved. And that's a, that's a unique title to be called by. And it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. It just means that there was somehow a very unique relationship between Jesus and and John, it said that John was the youngest of the disciples, so it might have been a big brother, little brother kind of thing. Um, John, we know he was one of the first, uh, the very first disciples. If you look in uh, Mark's account, Jesus comes and finds uh, Peter and his brother first, and then very shortly after that, he finds John and his brother James. Their father's name was Zebedee. They're on the water fishing. Jesus calls out, hey, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They, they leave their father behind, just like take off. And they're following Jesus, really, for the rest of Jesus' life. John was there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He was the only disciple at the crucifixion. All the rest of them scattered because they thought they were going to be persecuted. John, um, at the resurrection, raced Peter to the tomb and went inside to see for himself that Jesus was indeed not there. John was a loyal disciple through and through. John was such a special disciple to Jesus that on the cross, he looked down at John and his mother and asked John to be the guardian of his mother for the rest of his life. There's something unique in how John observed Jesus, and he articulates that to us in his gospel. Now, every book has a theme, and the Bible books are no different, and this is John's theme. 
His purpose is stated in John 20, 31. And we read this verse earlier, but here it is again. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're going to stick with this verse today. Next week, we're going to go actually go back to the beginning and start unpacking um, John from the beginning. But I thought we would sort of uh, get a feel for what John is trying to get us to learn in his gospel so that as we're going through the book, I mean, we know what to look for. And this is what John wants you to look for. He wants you to look for those things that tell you, bring you into what John has observed in regards to Jesus and that having, I mean, just experience John through his words, who Jesus is, that you might believe. He wants us to believe. John wants us, he wants to get across this. He wants, to, he wants us to hear what he heard as he walked with Jesus. He wants us to, to feel how he felt. He wants us to, to touch and be touched by Jesus through the experience that John lived as he interacted with Jesus. He wants the expression of Jesus' life. He, I mean, he wants us to get that. He wants us to get the most of all the significant things that he thought happened in the life of Jesus Christ. His three years of ministry for the, uh, to the world. Most importantly, John invites us to believe. I mean, he's inviting you that wherever you are in regards to who you think Jesus is and and how you're following him or not following him, he wants to encourage you, to challenge you, to believe. And so John's gospel is unique in that it, it doesn't start with Jesus as a baby. We don't see much of Jesus' early life. There's no genealogy like like the other synoptic gospels. He doesn't show us Jesus, Jesus being commissioned for ministry. Rather, John jumps right into Jesus as an adult, and he handpicks several events, events that he wants us to see who Jesus is and then, of course, be believed. John is trying to persuade us through his witness of Jesus in regards to his person and, and Jesus' work. In particular, John focuses on signs. There's a whole bunch of signs that John gives us. And we learn this in verse 30, John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. What he's saying there is, there's a whole, I mean, if, if I were, if I could record all that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough room in the books that we have to, to put them down in. What he's also acknowledging in the statement is, he's saying, you know what? My buddies, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they've already written accounts, and there's some stuff in there that you should just go and look at that. I'm going to tell you what's important to me, because I want, to, I want you to see the signs that Jesus did, and I want you to believe. And so these signs were public, intera- uh, public miracles that pointed to the truth of Jesus' deity. Here's a few. In John chapter 2, verse 7 through 11, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. Y'all been to a wedding? I mean, I mean... You can't buy a friend like that. I mean, <laughs> I'm serious. I wish, G, I wish I had known Jesus like John did at my wedding. This is not just open bar. This is like all the vintage liquor, wine, beer that you could find all around the world. Jesus is, he's made that available to uh, the, the family that was putting on this wedding. There's more to it than that. But, I mean, who could turn down a friend like that? And there's, there's a really a message in, in who Jesus is in regards to this, this miracle. This was the first miracle that Jesus did. 
And his mom is the one that asked him to do it. We're going to look at that. In John 4, we read of Jesus healing an official son. An official um, comes to Jesus in the same place where he, uh, he turned water into wine. And knowing who Jesus was, we don't know if he was Jewish or Greek, but he comes to Jesus and says, hey, my son is ill. I need you to, to come and heal him. And so Jesus basically, he, I mean, he rebukes the guy a little bit and says, hey, you just want me to perform a sign for you. And then the guy pleads with Jesus, Lord, if you'll just say the word, my son will be healed. And right there, the man believed. And Jesus says, go your way. Your son has been healed. So the man turns around, goes back towards his home. He meets his servant halfway and he finds out Jesus has healed him. And he didn't even have to go and do anything to his son. Healed him on the spot just by his words. In John 5, we read of Jesus healing a paralytic by a pool. This is a guy who had been um, lame for 38 years, just laying by a pool with other people, other, other paralytics. They'd wait for the water to stir, and there was something that happened miraculously that if they could just ease themselves into the water, the water sometime, somehow would just heal their, their uh, informalities. And so this guy was never able to get himself into the water when it would stir. And he saw Jesus pass by and calls out to him. And uh, Jesus basically says to him, if you will, you can be healed. And Jesus heals him on the spot. Another sign. In John 6, Jesus performs the miracle of feeding 5,000 people. They find a little boy with five pieces of bread and two fish. And Jesus feeds a whole, I mean, Think about that. That's like a basketball stadium full of people. Immediately after that, he walks on water. I'm always uh, mesmerized by the, the accounts of Jesus walking on water. There's only two of them. And, and so Jesus had been with his disciples. This is right after he had fed this, this crowd. Um, they're up on a mountain, sort of get, gotten away from everybody else. And then he tells the disciples to go away so he can stay, uh, stay on the mountain and, and pray a little bit. And then he decides to join them. And so Jesus doesn't join them by getting in a boat and rowing. He joins them by walking on the water. And a storm brews. The water is turbulent. And all of a sudden, Jesus is coming up on the disciples. And this is what it says. The, the scripture says, John writes, and they were afraid. But you know what happened? I mean, he's, uh, Jesus scared the bejesus out of them. That's what happened. In John 9, Jesus gives, gives sight to a blind man. A man who was born blind that could, I mean, he's never seen in his life. Jesus comes along to him and opens his eyes so that the world is, is new to him. And then immediately after that, in, in John 11, Jesus raises one of his closest friends, Lazarus, from the dead. But, you know, perhaps the greatest miracle of all, the greatest sign that Jesus shows and that John records is the death, is Jesus' death and resurrection. And this, this is what all these signs point to. They aren't signs just for the, the sake of doing, uh, Jesus doing miracles. They're pointing to something. And they're, they're pointing to Jesus saving deity. That is, that God offers salvation in Christ. So John in his gospel will tell us that the object of saving faith is not in the sign. It's not in the miracle. It's, it's in Jesus. And that's why he's encouraging us to believe. Believe in the sign, believe in the miracle, but more importantly, believe in the, the God-man that's making the miracle happen and that's pointing to him and who he is. You know, um, I grew up kind of sort of going to church. I went to church out of tradition, 
And I actually thought I was a Christian. I actually thought I believed in Jesus because I was in the church. I was, you know, I was listening to somebody preach a sermon. I, eventually, I walked an aisle. I, I prayed a prayer. The, prayer, the pastor told me to pray. I got baptized. But what John wants us to know is none of that stuff saves you. You, you, aren't, you don't get saved by going to church. You can't get saved by walking an aisle, praying a prayer, even being, uh, I mean, uh, the most moral person in your life. Salvation comes to us by responding in personal faith to the biblical testimony about Jesus. It's, it's trusting and surrendering our lives to him as Lord. And that's what John is portraying to us in regards to our belief about Jesus. John says, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is going, I mean, he's going to hammer this in. And as we're looking at this verse, trying to get our, grip, our, our, our minds around what we should be looking for throughout the, the entire gospel, there's two things that John wants us to get, and they're right here in this verse. Firstly, John wants us to believe regarding Jesus that Jesus, firstly, is God's son. He wants us to believe that Jesus is God's son. And to believe in Jesus as God's son is to believe in his person, that, uh, that a mere man that looks just like you and I was actually God. Perhaps you are listening to that, and that didn't even sound right to you. That's what John wants us to grasp. That's what he wants us to believe. Theologically, we call this the hypostatic union. It's that Jesus was 100% God, fully God, that he was 100% man, fully man, and those two entities were united in his person, and he's always been God. This, um, I mean, this is a a complex thought. And really to get that, to understand that rightly, you have to back up and actually understand what the Bible portrays about God. And the Bible says that God is a trinity, that God is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You've heard that before. And so John Gospel teaches us that the second person, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate. That means he spirit took on flesh. He put he put our skin on. I mean, became human just like we are today. And John articulates this in the very beginning of his gospel. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word was God. We're going to unpack this verse and the first five verses next week. But what John is saying here, that that word, word, he's talking about Jesus. I'll explain it in a little bit of detail next week. He's saying Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Jesus has always been God. A little bit later on in verse 14, he says these words, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's saying the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the word, put on flesh. He became incarnate, and he dwelt among us. God came from his high holy heaven and and became one of us, walking our roads, eating our food, in every way assimilating into the culture that verse 3 of John chapter 1 says he created it. Create, creator, uh, creator becomes a part of creation. This is what John is telling us. I mean, jointly here, what he's saying is 
Jesus is God. Jesus is also God's son. He's always been that way. Another verse, a few verses down from verse 14, verse, uh, verse chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. John says, if you see Jesus, you've seen God. Probably the most famous verse in all the Bible is John 3.16. There's, there's not a, it's not an end zone. It doesn't have a sign that says John 3.16. We're going to see one on TV today. Absolutely. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so this verse tells us that Jesus is God's son and that God gave this son to the world that we would have everlasting life. There's, there's many scriptures outside of John that help us to see that, that, that Jesus is the Son of God. We look at the, the genealogies in Matthew and Luke that, that go all the way back to Abraham and show the connection in, in lineage to, of Jesus to that and how Jesus is the, the, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He is the seed of Abraham. We can connect Jesus to, to David in the, the, the lineage of the kings. Jesus is in that lineage. Uh, we look at Luke chapter 3, verse 22, that shows a picture of the Trinity. Jesus is um, in the Jordan. He's with his cousin, John. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is, is baptized and he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit is said to come down like a dove. Jesus is being anointed for his ministry. And a voice sounds from heaven. And it says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God wants us to know that Jesus is his son. And so what's the significance of this? I think when it comes to our need for a savior, uh, the union of Jesus' deity and his humanity is absolutely hugely important for us. We need Jesus to be both God and to both be man in order for us to even have salvation. And so firstly, as God, he's all powerful. He can't be defeated. Jesus has defeated for us death, hell, sin, and the grave. Because he's God, he's the only adequate savior. Because he's God, believers are safe and can never perish. John will tell us that those who God has given to Jesus, I mean, he, he won't let go. We, we can't be taken from him. We have security in that. Because Jesus is God, we can have confidence that he will empower us for the task that he commands us to do. That means that we operate not in our own strength, but we can operate in Jesus' strength because, he, I mean, he has all power. And because he's God, all people will be accountable to him when he returns to judge the world. But we don't just need Jesus to be our God. We also need him to identify uniquely with who we are as people. And so because Jesus is man, he's experienced all the same things that we do. Because he's man, he can identify with us more intimately because he's a man. He can come to our aid as a sympathetic high priest when we reach the limits of our own human weaknesses. Because Jesus is man, we can relate to him. He's not far off or uninvolved. Because Jesus is a man, we can't complain that God doesn't know what we're going through. Jesus has experienced it firsthand. And so John bears a testimony that Jesus is God's son, presenting us all these miracles that can't be accounted for in any other way. And so when he turns the water into wine, like I mentioned before, what I mean, the 
the lesson of that is, is that Jesus is, he's the giver of joy. Have you, I mean, I was going to ask, who drinks wine in here? Don't, don't raise your hand. Some of y'all don't. Some of y'all don't. You get mad at me for even talking about it. Here's the thing. Jesus turned water into wine. It wasn't grape juice. It was wine. It was at a wedding, and they were rejoicing in it. And the picture here is that Jesus is the giver of joy. When you see any, any semblance of talk about wine in Scripture, it's giving you the impression of, of joy, of overflowing happiness and blessing that comes on us. The psalmist, the psalmist says, I got to find it in my, in my notes. The psalmist says, God gives us wine to gladden the hearts of man. And so Jesus is the, the ultimate giver of joy. That's what he's doing when he turns water into wine. But more than that, uh, the, the, the lesson here is that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. There's an abundance of life that's only to be found in him. That's what John wants us to see. And he wants us to, to know that we can have that joy, that abundance can come to us. But more than that, he wants us just to believe it. Jesus said, um, Jesus said that the man born blind had lived in a state so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so there was a man who was who was born blind. And then all of a sudden he sees. And guess what? The Pharisees and the religious leaders, even after I mean, they brought in all these people. Tell us what was going on in this man's life. Surely all of a sudden he can't see. I mean, who did this to you? And the man's testimony was. I don't know. Do you want to follow him? He said, all I know is once I was blind, now I see. Most impressively, Jesus claimed deity for himself. Right before raising Lazarus from the grave, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. You remember, remember that interchange with Jesus and, and Martha? Jesus waited four days for, for Lazarus to kind of stew in that tomb. And then he comes and Martha saying, Lord, don't open the tomb now because he stinketh in the King James. And so Jesus stretched out his arms. He, he called out, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? The tomb was open. Lazarus came out in his grave clothes and the man who was dead was alive. Jesus wants us to believe that he's the son of God. Second thing, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus wants us, John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And to believe in Jesus as the Christ is to believe in his work. So we believe in God the Son, that, that Jesus is God's Son. We believe in his person, that he is a person. When we believe in Jesus as Christ, we believe in Jesus and his work, his saving work. You know, uh, um, this is funny to me, but uh, I know a lot of people, maybe even some of you, that when I say Jesus Christ, you think Christ is his last name. I won't have you raise your hand. All right. I mean, I mean, we have really messed up Jesus name. I mean, there's expletives that we use and we cuss and say Jesus sometimes. Sometimes we give Jesus a middle initial. Jesus H. Christ as a cuss word. Christ is not Jesus last name. Obviously, it's not meant to be a, a, a slur or any kind of. Um, vulgar vernacular. Christ is a title. Okay, it's, it's what is it's what has been 
um, deemed upon him. Uh, Christ is the Greek word Christos, which means Messiah or anointed one. And it is important because it falls in the likes of the Old Testament anointed offices of prophet, priest and king. And what John is getting across to us, as many of the uh, letters in the New Testament do, is Jesus perfectly fulfills all of these through his life and actually even now uh, forever fulfills these uh, in regards to us and our salvation. And so firstly, the, the purpose of prophets was to reveal God to, to his people. A, a prophet spoke God's words and represented God to people to make sure they knew what the, I mean, what the standard was. And so John identifies Jesus as the true prophet who reveals God to his people. Um, one of my favorite stories in, in John is in John chapter 4. John comes to uh, a Samaritan woman at a well. It's during the middle of the day. She shouldn't have been there. But she's, uh, she's in many ways uh, an, an, an immoral woman. She's had five husbands. She's living with a woman, uh, a man. I'm sorry. She's living with a man who's not her husband. And Jesus prophetically just reads this woman's life. He tells her everything about her. And so she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Duh. But in the midst of that, Jesus talks to her about worship and talks to her in such a way that She's drawn to not only who he is, but the salvation that he offers. And so they get into a conversation about worship. And she says, well, sir, the Samaritans believe that there's going to come a time when we'll worship on this mountain and a prophet's going to come and reveal all things to us. And Jesus says to her very plainly, lady, the one you want, I'm him. I'm the prophet that you are looking for right here in the flesh. This lady was so impacted. I believe that she was converted on the spot. She goes back to her own village. Others come to faith through her, and she says these words, could this be the Christ? The second office was the the office of priest, and a priest represented the people to God. A priest served in the temple. A priest administered the sacraments. A priest um, would atone for the people's sins by offering sacrifices to God. And so John provides a witness that Jesus is the anointed, is, is, is co- coveted with this anointed office of priest. Uh, in the very first chapter of John, um, John shows us a picture of John the Baptist. We don't see the baptism or anything, anything like this, but Jesus is coming to John, and John says these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then thirdly, Jesus fulfills the office of king. What does a king do? In the Old Testament, a king would rule God's people on God's behalf. A king was a representative of God in every way that you could represent God. And so John's testimony bears, uh, John's gospel bears testimony that Jesus uh, is is rightly fitted for the, the royal office as an anointed king over God's people. Here's the interesting thing about, about how John portrays Jesus as king. You know, the, the, the Jew, Jesus wasn't the king that the Jews wanted. They wanted, you know, they wanted a gladiator. They wanted a, a military ruler who was going to come in with a whole host of, of army folk. Sorry, Air Force. <laughs> I had to do that. Whole host of people. And, you know, open up a can of, you know what. But, but Jesus, that wasn't who Jesus was. 
Jesus came as an unlikely king. In fact, while they wanted a military conquer, instead, John shows us that Jesus gathered his kingdom by being lifted up on a cross. And on that cross, he died, that the cross was his throne. These three anointed offices, prophet, priest, king, find their fulfillment in Jesus, who perfectly and eternally fills these roles for the salvation of believers like you and I. And so what, is, uh, what does John present to us? That's true about Jesus. Well, this is what he presents to us. He gives us the invitation to, to believe. And, and this is what John says is the, the benefit of believing. It's in verse 31. He says, we have life in his name. John is going to wear that word life out. I think it's probably John's favorite word. He doesn't only use it in his gospel. He uses it in first, second, third John. He uses it in the book of, of Revelation. John wrote all those. It's his favorite word. It's a mega theme in the gospel. And what John wants us to get at in regards to this idea of life is that Jesus is the one who gives life. John 1, 4, he says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. We'll look at this next week. But John tells us that Jesus is the source of life. Later in John 5, verse 26, he says, for as the father has life in himself, so, how, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. John is saying not only does Jesus possess life, but life itself is found in him and comes only through him. And so when John speaks of life in Christ, he's especially referring to spiritual life. We call it eternal life. And John will use that that word very often. You know, eternal life is one of those squishy terms. I mean, none of us in this room have really experienced eternal life. Anybody, any of y'all live forever yet? I mean, our forever has started if you're in Christ. But honestly, it's a squishy term. It's, it's hard to define. I like when, what, what, what one writer says. He says, we should think of eternal life not merely in terms of its quantity, but in terms of its quality. It's the life that God has lived in us right now. It's not the prolonging of our earthly kind of life, but the heavenly life that begins in us the moment we believe in Jesus. It never ends. And so unending millions of years from now, the life that's in God will still be ours in and through Christ. And so John insists that eternal life comes through faith in Jesus by believing in his name. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You have you, you, the only way you can get it is by receiving it in faith. And Jesus secured it by his perfect life, his atoning death. And, of course, his, his glorious resurrection. The whole of John's gospel pleads with us to believe on Jesus. That's what he's trying to get us to get us to come to grips with. That's what he's trying to get us to do as, as potential followers of Jesus. And so given all that John, the other gospels, and the rest of the Bible records concerning Jesus, it really is astonishing that, that people are reluctant to claim Jesus as Savior and Christ of their, of their lives. But the truth is, many of us, and I mean, I, almost as I started at the beginning, many of us would rather have uh, this unreal perspective of Jesus and live in regards to that than to receive who Jesus really is. Sometimes the real Jesus doesn't make me happy. I'm, uh, I was talking to a two or three year old last Sunday at the new members, uh, the members class, and uh, she was not happy with Jesus. 
it was a it was a great conversation, but she was being very honest. She wasn't happy with Jesus. And almost like that, that three-year-old little girl, some of us aren't happy with Jesus, the, the real Jesus. And we'll take on any kind of Jesus that will satisfy our needs and make us happy. And so who is the real Jesus? John helps us to know. John says he's the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He's the one the Jews had been waiting for. Jesus is the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He's the one to deliver us from captivity. Jesus is the goal of the Mosaic law. Yahweh in the flesh. He's the one to establish God's reign and rule. The one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim God's good news to the poor. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, reversed the curse. Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent. He's the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood. He's the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ promised through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died. He's the Christ promised to David when he was king. He's the Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant. He's the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. Jesus Christ is not a reflection of our current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and a substitute for our sins. More lovingly, more holy, more wonderfully terrifying than we could ever think possible. And John's question is, will you believe? Let's pray. Lord, we open a new book today, and we pray for your grace that as we read the words of the Gospel of John, they would be fresh for us, for those who've read it many times. Lord God, would you would you make it as if we're reading it for the first time, and would you take our breath away as we are enlightened from John's words in regards to the miracles, the signs that Jesus does? May we be May we be compelled to follow him as the I am, as John portrays him to us. For those here who don't believe, who have yet to surrender their lives to Jesus and his authority, God, I pray for the Holy Spirit to come and take away inhibitions, to take away all those obstacles that we have. Lord, would you remove us from all those fake Jesuses that we, that we give ourselves to? And would you show us Jesus, the real Jesus, freshly, that we might see him, that we might believe in his miracles, that the signs might not just be signs for signs' sake, but they might be signs pointing us to who he really is and that it would beckon us to follow. God, our prayer through this series is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in this name. That's our prayer. And we pray it in his great name. Amen and amen.